Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Let's get into the word of God. It's what can change our life today. And so let's trust it. Let's listen to it. I'm going to try my best to preach it. And then we're going to apply it to our lives. Acts chapter 13 in our study through this exciting book of the Bible. A church on mission. The the exciting, amazing days, sometimes scary days of the early believers was just awesome. And it's been awesome. Acts chapter number 13. Before we jump into the word, I, I want to consider a word with you today. It's the word superior. The word superior means to be higher in rank, status, or quality. Now, there's a lot of subjectivity involved in what we might think qualifies as superior. We we could talk about what the superior truck brand is. Is it Ford? Ford? Ford owners are just ashamed to even admit it. And Kurt's just dumb. But anyway, (laughs) there's Ford. Is it Chevy? GMC? All right, there's some Americans. Is it Dodge? (laughs) How about the superior football team? Is it the Cowboys? Y'all know what I feel about the Cowboys, right? On the authority of God's word, they are not even a football team. (laughs) How about the Chiefs? Is it the Chiefs? The Broncos? Who is the superior basketball player? Was it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron James? What about the superior computer? PC or Mac? Mac people don't even need to say something because they just know. It's like, really? You still use a PC? That's so condescending. I'm sorry. How about the phone? Is it the iPhone? Is it the the Google Pixel? Is it Samsung Galaxy? Here's what's the most important debate of the day. What is the superior cereal? Is it Cinnamon Toast Crunch? Because that's near and dear to my belly. Is it Raisin Bran? What my mom forced down my throat as a child? And when she wasn't looking, I went and doused it with sugar. Is it Captain Crunch? What my dad grew up eating in bed at 9.30 at night? Fruity Pebbles? Come 2024, our entire country is going to be arguing about something. Who's the superior candidate for the next president of the United States? Can we just buckle up for that? And agree that it's not going to divide us as Christians. That we're not loyal to the donkey. And and we're not loyal to the elephant. We're loyal to the lamb. All right, we're on the same team. Now go vote and do your thing. uh, And feel strongly about it. But don't bring it in here. We could argue about the superiority of those things all day long, right? And still not come to an agreement. Because Ford people are going to drive Fords. And Chevy people are going to drive Chevy. And Dodge people are going to drive Dodges. Cowboy fans still root for the Cowboys. I don't know why, but you can't change their minds. You know why? It's all subjective. It's all personal opinion. But I'm here to tell you that when it comes to the superiority of Jesus, there is no argument today. 
He's higher in rank. He's higher in status. He's higher in quality than anything or anyone else. And I want you to know that's not my subjective opinion. That is an objective truth straight from scripture. I want to show you that truth in our text today. I'm titling the sermon simply the superiority of Jesus Christ. Acts 13 records for us the first missionary journey of the great apostle Paul and his missionary partner Barnabas. Pastor David preached a couple of weeks ago how they were sent out of the the missions-minded, thriving congregation in Antioch. And this chapter is going to show us the three stops in their journey. Cyprus, Perga, and Pisidian, Antioch. But this chapter doesn't just record Paul's first missionary journey. It, It also records Paul's first sermon in the book of Acts. Now, I think he's preached sermons before Acts 13, but this is the first recorded sermon we have in Scripture from the Apostle Paul. So what we're going to discover is that in both the first missionary journey and in the first uh, uh, sermon of Paul, there's a common theme, and it's the superiority of Jesus Christ. So we work our way through the text, we're going to... We're going to pull out three ways that Jesus is superior. I I, I need you to just dive into the word with me today. Want to learn, want to study, and and want to be changed by Christ. So look at verse number four. So they, this is Paul and Barnabas, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue to the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. And when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy or the governor of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man or an intelligent man. He called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so his name by interpretation, it's the same guy as what we just read, Bar-Jesus, withstood them seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O fool of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, will thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Let me break down what I just read. Paul and Barnabas had begun their evangelistic efforts on the island of Cyprus. They, they stopped first at the eastern port island of, of uh, Salamis, where, where they preached the gospel to the Jews in the synagogues there. Then they went on to work the 90-mile width of the island until they arrived in a place called Paphos. While they are in Paphos, they encountered a sorcerer. A Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. And and they also encountered another Gentile man, a powerful man, by the name of Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus was the the governor um, of the island of Cyprus, the Roman governor. He was a prudent man, an intelligent man. Our text tells us that he asked for Barnabas and Paul to come to him to read and, and teach him the word of God. Apparently, we take for granted the counsel from his personal prophet, Bar-Jesus, was leaving him wanting more. Well, when Bar-Jesus heard about how he tried to turn the governor away from hearing the word, how Paul and Barnabas tried to do that, uh, Bar-Jesus, he stood in the way. He didn't want Paul and Barnabas to have access to the governor because 
Well, that was his livelihood at stake. If the governor trusted their counsel more than his, then he didn't have a job. From there, a confrontation between Paul and Bargesus ensued, and it was intense. We read it. Paul cursed him. He didn't sugarcoat it. He calls him a child of the devil. He accused him of perverting the right ways of the Lord. And as a result, God judged Bargesus by striking him blind, which, by the way, was a fitting judgment because Bargesus was a proponent of spiritual darkness. He, he was a false prophet. He was in touch with demonic powers. He wasn't just a magician who pulled rabbits out of hats. It's much more serious than that. He was a superstitious occult leader. He was a tool in the hand of the devil. He was an enemy of the gospel. So God judged him. And then Luke gives us a good report. He ends positive. When the governor, who was very curious about what Paul and Barnabas were teaching, saw what had happened, the Bible says he believed. Get this, the prominent Roman official who had no religious background became a member in the family of God. If we're not careful, we'll read Acts and and we'll read about all these conversion stories and we'll start getting numb to them. He believed, they believed, 2,000 believed, 3,000 believed, 5,000 believed. And we think that's ordinary. It's not ordinary. For a lost political figure in Rome to come to Christ is a really big deal, church. So here's the picture. The ruler of the darkness of this world was trying to use Bargesus to capture the heart of a lost man. While at the same time, God was using the light of the gospel to change his heart and turn him into a saved man. And God won. John Stott said the Holy Spirit overthrew the evil one. The apostle confounded the sorcerer and the gospel triumphed over the occult. That's our first observation today. Jesus is superior to spiritual darkness. Ephesians chapter number six says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In other words, people aren't our enemy. Here's what uh, we wrestle against. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. Listen to me, friend. The devil is real. Spiritual darkness is no joke. We live in a spiritually dark world from mass shootings to sex trafficking to substance abuse to sexual perversion. Our world is an absolute mess. We got to take heart from this text as a believer and as a church that Jesus is more powerful and he's superior to the darkness of this world. Bible says greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. For the believer in here today. I believe we're to do what Paul did. We're to take the light of the gospel into the darkness of our society. Do you remember the kid's song, This Little Light of Mine? I'm going to let it shine. I like the second verse. Hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. The the, the only hope that our dark, dark world has is the hope of Jesus Christ. If we hide our light, then in essence, we're hiding from the world. The only hope they have to break free from the darkness of sin in their lives. Matthew 5 speaks of the church as a, as a light of the world, a city set on a hill which cannot be hid. Fellowship Baptist Church, hear me, it exists to be a light 
in our dark community. We can't just huddle up every Sunday and Wednesday in the four walls of the building at 310 West Pancake. We must invade our workplaces. We must invade our schools. We must invade our hospital. We must invade our law enforcement agencies. We must invade our grocery stores, our banks, our parks. We must invade every square inch of our community with the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. And here's why. Because he alone is superior to the spiritual darkness of this world. No one else can change a life but Jesus Christ. There may be some, even in our congregation today, who would be in the category of lost. Lost in darkness. Unbelieving. Overcome with spiritual darkness, oppression from the evil one. I'm talking about the person in our midst who's been looking for answers in dark places. Searching for satisfaction in a bottle, in a pill, in a drug, in sex, in the party scene. Maybe even have resorted to self-harm or maybe you've been experimenting with, with some dark demonic activity. If, if you're honest today, maybe your life could be characterized by the word darkness. It seems as though the light is never going to break through. It seems as though your addiction could never be overcome. Or your past mistakes are going to haunt you the rest of your life. Your reputation is forever ruined. It seems that darkness is your permanent and final stop in life. I've got news for you. Jesus can save you. In Mark chapter 5, he walked into the life of a demon-possessed man. They tried to chain him, and he broke the chains. They tried to put clothes on him, and he ripped them off, and he became such a nuisance and distraction and danger in society that they, they, they made him an outcast and thrust him outside of the village where the people dwelt. But Jesus went to that man. He was oppressed by demons. He was possessed by demons. Hundreds, maybe thousands of them. And Jesus walked up to him and he ministered to him. He got close to him. He touched him. He spoke the word of life to him. And when Jesus was done ministering to him, Mark says this, he was clothed and in his right mind. And Jesus can do the same for you today. He can take what's ruined and make it right. He can take what's broken and put it back together. He can take what's dirty and clean it up. He can take what's dead and bring it to life. He can take your depression and turn it into joy. He can take your anger and turn it into peace. He can invade your darkness with his light and change your life forever. I believe it. I'm not screaming it just to get amens, though I love amens. I really believe this. If you came into church today and you are overcome with your condition, no matter how you would qualify that, Jesus loves you. He hates your sin, but he loves you. And he can free you from that if you'll repent and place your faith in him. Let's continue to journey with Paul and Barnabas. Verse number 13 Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia and John departing from them returned to Jerusalem. That little phrase and John departing from that's going to be handy when we get to chapter 15, verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law, the prophets uh, and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them saying, ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. 
So right now they find themselves in what we would consider to be present day Turkey. Uh, Then they continued on to Pisidian Antioch. This this region, this city, this place was was a super, super influential place. Political and, and big time economic region. These are where Paul, this would be his pattern. He wanted to reach influential places. Uh, we, we read where, where Paul once again starts in a Jewish synagogue. They went through their normal routines and then they asked for, for Paul to give an exposition of scripture after, the, after everybody else did their thing. I think they asked Paul because they had heard that he had been tutored under the, the great Rabbi Gamaliel. And they probably wanted to see what wisdom he had from that. Our text says that Paul stands up and he doesn't tell them what, the, what they think he's going to tell them. He does address a Jewish audience and, and he does that in a way that's suitable for his audience. See, they were familiar with the law. They were familiar with prophets. They were familiar with David. And Paul's going to mention all those things to show them that Jesus is actually greater. Listen closely. The Jewish people, they trusted for salvation in what pointed to Jesus. Paul's going to teach them that what points to Jesus doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. And so he goes back to the Old Testament, something that they would be familiar with, likely have memorized. And, and, he, and he teaches them, them this. Jesus is superior to the Old Testament shadows. A couple of things. He says, he says Jesus is superior to the exodus of the Old Testament. He's a superior exodus. Now, this is where you have to study with me. Verse 17. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an high arm brought them out of it. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan or the promised land, he divided their land to them by lot. So this is Old Testament history. The Exodus was when the children of Israel, the book of Exodus, if you're in the Bible reading plan, you'd have already read that. They were in bondage as slaves to the powerful Egyptians. God in his grace had compassion on them. He rescued them. He made them his people. He freed them from bondage and he led them out of Egypt through the wilderness into Canaan, into the promised land. All of this is a picture of what he would ultimately do through Jesus Christ. He would send Jesus into the world like he sent Moses into Egypt to free sinners from the bondage of their sins. And so what the Exodus accomplished for the nation of Israel is an Old Testament shadow or picture of a superior Exodus that sinners can find through Jesus Christ. He then mentions a superior prophet. Verse 20. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel, the prophet. Now we've been studying last year and a half or so through two years through 1 Samuel and Second Samuel. Samuel was an instrumental man in the history of God's people. Before Moses died, in fact, he prophesied in Deuteronomy 18, 15, that God would raise up another prophet. And he's talking about Samuel. Think about Samuel. He stood up to the evil of his day. He taught God's people the word. He stood between God and the people. He represented God to the people. But as good as he was, here's what Paul's saying. He was only a foreshadow of a greater prophet. Jesus Christ. Think about it. Jesus would be able to stand and teach truth in greater ways than Samuel ever did. 
Jesus would be able to confront evil greater and more effectively than Samuel. Jesus would be able to stand between God and sinners as a mediator and intercessor in greater ways than Samuel ever could. He was a greater prophet. Paul then moves on to a superior king. Verse 21, and afterward they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. If you know the history of Israel, you know that they got sick of Samuel. He was old. Samuel's sons were worthless. They said, we want a king like all the other nations. God said, you don't need a king. I am your king. Let me put a king in place. And they said, no, give us a king. And they gave them what they wanted. And when, the, when they got what they wanted, they ended up not wanting what they got. It was King Saul. He was a terrible king. When he was off the scene, God anointed a, another king, King David, a man after his own heart, perhaps the greatest king in the history of Israel, who did the will of God. He wasn't perfect, but he did the will of God. But look at verse 23. Of this man's seed, meaning David, hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a savior, Jesus. Are you studying with me? From David came a greater king, Jesus Christ. Paul calls him a savior. Church, this is what makes him superior to David. David was a good king, but he couldn't be a savior. David was a sinner. Jesus wasn't. Even though Jesus uh, had David's blood, he didn't have his failures. But there's another difference and a difference we're going to study next Sunday between Jesus and David. Look down at verse 29 in Paul's sermon. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him, this is talking about Jesus, took him down from the tree or the cross and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. How many believe that? Okay, verse 36, go down to verse 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep, he died. And he was laid into his fathers, just like Jesus was. But watch here. He saw corruption. In other words, his body rotted. But he, Jesus, whom God raised again, saw no corruption. Jesus is superior to David and every other king because he didn't stay dead. Both men died. Only one man came back to life. David's body rotted away. Jesus' body came out of the grave. And we're going to celebrate that next Sunday. This is what we place our hope in for our salvation. Not Moses, not Abraham, not Samuel, not David. We place our hope in the resurrected Christ. He's greater. Paul concludes his sermon in verse 38. Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren... That through this man, Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, all that believe are justified, made right from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Oh, listen closely. He's telling these Jews, the law of Moses cannot save you from your sin. Every Old Testament character, as great as they were, still falls short of Jesus Christ. They were just shadows of a greater one that was yet to come. How do we apply this? Well, there probably aren't many in here today that are looking to Moses to save them. Or there might not be many here today that are looking to King David 
to save them. But there are people in here today who are looking to things that point to Jesus to save them instead of Jesus himself. Our modern examples would be the church ordinances, baptism and communion. These two church ordinances clearly point us to the Savior. We're going to have a baptism service today. We're going to have a communion service Wednesday. And save people, get baptized. And save people, partake of communion. That's what saved people do. You hear me? It's what saved people do. But we don't do those things in order to be saved. We do those things because they're symbolic. They point to Jesus. In baptism, it it pictures the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It it shows us a picture of what happens in the life of somebody who believes in Jesus. Their sin is buried and they're raised to walk in their new life with Christ. In communion, we remember the body and blood of Jesus. His body was broken on a cross. His blood was shed on a cross so that we could be forgiven of our sin. They're beautiful things for the church to participate in and and to display publicly because they point to Jesus. But they're only symbolic. Save people do them, but they aren't saved by them. If you're trusting in your baptism as an infant to go to heaven... That infant baptism, my friend, will let you down. Jesus is greater. If you're trusting in a class you took as a teenager. If you're, if you're trusting in, in, in that communion service that, that, that you've done for so long. The, 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 the ordinance, the sacrament, and, and, and you've participated in that. And you've been taught that, that that literally washes away your sin. It literally does. When it enters your body, it becomes the blood of Christ and makes you free. If you are trusting in, in your confession to, to an earthly father, an earthly priest, hear me. Jesus is greater than all. You trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The Bible says that when he died, he uttered this phrase, it is, say it, finished. What did he say? It's paid in full. Yes, you had a humongous debt because of your sin. When you sin against a holy God, you don't deserve heaven. You don't. We are disqualified because we sin. Because we are sinners by nature. It's in us. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us qualify for heaven. But Jesus helps us. And he died on the cross. He rose from the grave. So as to say, you don't have to get yourself to heaven. I've done it all for you. It is finished. Paid in full. Trust in Jesus. Rely on Jesus. Jesus, and guess what? He will get you to heaven. But let me give you a warning. Verse 40, beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Paul adds a note of urgency as the conclusion of his sermon. He says, I've told you something and probably shocked you by what I've told you. You didn't expect this when you asked for my exposition of scripture today. But Jesus Christ has changed my life. I used to be you. 
trusting in Old Testament shadows. Trusting in everything but grace. Denying the Messiah. Persecuting Christians. Believing in the Torah to take me to heaven. I used to be you, but I gave my life to Jesus. He knocked me off my donkey one day. He woke me up. He revealed himself to me. I I, I, I gave my life to him. And now, I'm giving my life to tell you about him. And he is the way, the truth, the life. No man can come into the Father except by Jesus. And beware. Before I leave, Paul said, beware. Because there were prophets that spoke greater than me. And people still rejected them. And Paul must have sensed that in his midst. Were people just like the people of the Old Testament. Would hear a message of Jesus so clearly. Come and leave and never accept it. And as a preacher of the gospel. I have to take for granted. That if them people were in Paul's audience. And they were in Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah's audience. They might be in my audience today. So beware. Because there's only one sin that can send you to hell. Unbelief. You can be forgiven of all your sin no matter what it is. But if you persist in unbelief, you will not be made right with the Father. So beware. There's only one decision that determines your eternal destiny. And it's what you choose to do with Jesus. Let me show you one more thing in our text. Verse 45 through verse 52. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you and and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. Watch here. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. But they, Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is superior to the enemy's opposition. There will always be a mixed reaction when we share the gospel. What I just did in lifting Jesus up from the scripture. Watch here. Some today will believe. And some won't. Some today will be joyful about it. And some will be angry about it. Some will accept you and some will reject you. And it's important that you don't just assume you're in the wrong place because you face opposition. In fact, it may indicate that you're exactly where you should be. In this case, the Spirit of God led the missionaries into a war zone, right? In Mark chapter 1, in other parts of the gospel, I don't know where it's at in the other gospels, but for sure in Mark chapter 1, The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted or opposed by Satan. I believe that opposition doesn't mean you're in the wrong place or all the time doing the wrong thing. I think sometimes opposition is a God-given opportunity. See, in adversity, we have the opportunity to advertise the power of the gospel. We show the world the worth of Christ when we follow Jesus in the face of conflict. 
Opposition didn't stop the missionaries from preaching. You read what they did. They shook the dust off of their feet and went to another town to preach Christ. More than that, they were filled with joy while they were being chased out of town. How? I believe it's because they saw how their message was changing lives. Though the Jews didn't believe it and rejected it, our text says that many non-Jews, the Gentiles, believed. And I think this emboldened and motivated Paul and Barnabas to continue. This showed them, church, that they may get rejected by some and they may even get persecuted by some. But at the end of the day, the gospel still wins. They believe that the message of Jesus has the power to pierce through even the fiercest opposition And with that assurance, these missionaries just went like this. Adios. Going to the next place. They didn't let opposition sideline them. And we do well to learn from that today. Makes me think of coaching Little League Baseball. I'm coaching a group of 9 and 12 year old boys right now. And you would think that the hardest part about coaching them would be teaching them the fundamentals of the game. That's not the hardest part. You know what the hardest part about it is? Is to keep them boys from crying when they strike out. I don't know if they're embarrassed, they're ashamed, or they just think they'll never, ever get a hit. But they're throwing helmets and they're weeping. And they literally think it's the end of the world. And so I have a tall task. I got to help them understand that Cooperstown, the baseball hall of fame, is full of players that failed 70%, 75% of the time. The best hitters only hit the ball three out of every 10 tries. And they're in the hall of fame. But what made them great is their ability to get back in the box. They handled failure well. They understood there's going to be another chance. They learned to shake it off. And when you're attempting to help people find and follow Jesus, you're going to feel like you strike out every once in a while. It may be rejection at times. It may be opposition at other times. But you have to learn to shake it off. Just put your helmet back on the bench. Lay your bat down. And know God's going to give you another chance. Holy Spirit's going to give you another co-worker. Holy Spirit's going to give you another open door. Holy Spirit's going to give you another child to witness to in children's church. Holy Spirit's going to give you another shot at it. Tony Merida said this, perhaps you're zealous to share the good news. But are you ready for opposition? It's inevitable. But along with persevering in spite of it comes a deep joy that comes from obedience to Jesus. So he says, go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Telling the nations how to find forgiveness through Christ, even though it'll cost you. I like this. Grab your Bible, your passport, and your first aid kit. And make the light of the gospel known in this dark world. See, we can argue about what brand of truck is best. We can argue about what phone or computer is best. We can argue about what team's going to win the championship. And we'll never agree. But this passage of scripture today makes one thing clear. You can't argue the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was He is, he will forever be higher in status, rank, and quality. So here's what we do. You believe in Jesus. If you are an unbeliever today, you you, you repent, you turn your back to trusting in things other than him. 
You run from your sin and you run to the cross and you rely on him to make you right with the father. He's the only one that can. We'd love to tell you more about it. We're gonna have a public invitation where you can come forward and pray with one of our pastors if you'd like. Or you can fill out a connection card located in the seat back in front of you. Drop it in the offering plate. And one of our pastors will follow up with you this week. Try to set up a time where he can answer any question that you have. Man, we'd love to do that. If you are a believer, then here's what, we, here's what we leave church determined to do. Share Jesus like we really believe he's superior. Share him. Come on, some of you men talk about your Ford like crazy. You talk about your Chevy like crazy. Talk about your Dodge like crazy. You talk about your team like crazy. Why? Because you're proud of them. You think it's superior. You like it. Why don't we talk about Jesus like that? Have you been convinced today he's greater? Have you been convinced that he's superior? Then brag about him. Show him off. Put him on public display. Tell somebody about him. The greatest way to do that is invite someone to Resurrection Sunday next week. We're going we're gonna to lift Jesus up. And it's going to be a sermon, I think, that gives hope to people. So I hope that you'll show him off this week. Like he is a superior God. Would you stand to your feet?